episode of Doth Protest Too Much. Doth Protest Too Much is a guest-based podcast, brings on authors, scholars, and ministers, and others to discuss topics to church history. If you haven't already and you listen to us via uh, Apple Podcasts, please go ahead and give us a rating or review. Five stars, one star. We respect all opinions. Also, feel free to reach out with any comments or questions you have of the show, of past episodes, uh, discussions. Uh, you can email me on the, pod- on the podcast at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. So and that, there'll be a link for that in the show notes as well. So today we are graced with the presence of Dr. James Arcady. Is that how you pronounce your last name? It's actually Arcadi. So Arcadi, okay. I think more Italian pronunciation and less Greek. Okay, Arcadi, more Italian, less Greek. Uh, he's a professor of biblical and systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And Dr. Arcadi has written and been published widely on such theological topics as, incar- as the incarnation, soteriology, and especially on the topic of the Eucharist or the beliefs surrounding Holy Communion, and also also called the Mass or the, or the Lord's Supper. His recent book, An Incarnational Model of the Eucharist, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Dr. Alcardi holds a PhD from University of Bristol and additional degrees from Gordon-Conwell and Biola. And we are honored to have him join us today. So how are you today maybe we call you james for sure that's fine yeah right. thanks well it's, it's good to be here thanks so much for the uh the invitation looking forward to chatting thank you um it's, it's an honor to have uh someone who's written so much um so today you're uh joining us to discuss some of your work you've done on thomas cramner um hmm. especially in regard to his teachings and beliefs on the eucharist or the holy communion mass and lord's supper we'll just here on out for our listeners we'll refer to it as the eucharist and um and of course also for our listeners thomas cramner uh some of you may remember that name has popped up in the last couple episodes because we've kind of uh talked about english reformation on the last couple episodes and so cramner's name has popped up uh, so james given your background in ministry and theology what was it of all the theological topics and historical figures that you were especially drawn to the study of Thomas Cramner and Cramner's belief of the Eucharist? Mm. Yeah, great question. Well, again, thanks for having me on the show here and uh, I'm excited to be here. Um, well, I suppose like a lot of uh, topics that one researches, there's sort of like personal as well as academic uh, interests in, in these various topics. So um, uh my, my interest in Cramner and in the English Reformation and kind of historical theology of that period uh, really emerged when I was at Gordon-Conwell doing my Master's of Theology, my THM, and uh, it was in historical theology that I was focusing there. I went on to do systematics for my PhD, and that's kind of more what I teach now is in systematic theology. 
Um, but for me, it was it was part of my own discernment into Anglicanism. So, like many North American Anglicans, I, I was raised a you know Baptist sort of a, a evangelical, and uh, yet you know found myself on the Canterbury Trail and for, for various reasons. And so, I was just kind of curious about the founding of. Um, sort of the Anglican tradition, or at least as it was found in the English Reformation. And uh, part of the draw to Anglicanism was the sacramental theology, uh, the Eucharistic theology. So kind of the, the the conjunction of those two things led me to think of, well, what's going on right at the ground floor, at least in that in that controversial 16th century with respect to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And, um, and especially as it intersected with the liturgical developments that were going on at that time period. And so Cramner was an obvious figure to, to spend some time with, uh, trying to understand um, what was going on both in the 16th century as well as uh, for him for him personally. So that's a bit of my the draw to that topic. Well, it's amazing the draw that Anglicanism has for people of many prior traditions. Yeah, mm. yeah I guess the Baptist evangelical is a very American evangelical and American Baptist. A lot of them find themselves into Anglicanism and um, and yeah, kind of just from all over the place. And so, uh, well, yes, no, thank you for, for that. Um, now, on the topic of the Eucharist, you know, many of our listeners who attend or at least uh, have been to a church where they receive communion, um, whether or not that is a big part of um, their tradition or not, I think it is fair to say that all of us have a sense of what we are doing. Um, that is, it's obviously more than just going up and you know, getting a piece of bread in your hand or having a sip of wine. I mean, even someone who's totally unchurched or unfamiliar with that, you know, prior and they visit a church and they do it, um, there's still a sense of that there's something more going on, mm-hmm. uh, that there's something else going on, if you will. So in your article, uh, Discerning the Body of Christ, you mentioned how when people receive communion, um, that there are kind of two simultaneous things um, or state of affairs that are happening in the moment, if you will. Uh, maybe it might not be the best way to put it, but kind of, you know, because um, I know it's not exactly a, a time linear thing either, right? Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, so one way of kind of looking at the various range of options out there is to see it as a, as a range of options. So as, as you mentioned there, some people have a sense that there's kind of more going on and maybe back to kind of the prior question, that was one sort of, um, I don't know, eye-opening moment for me was realizing that there are a whole lot more options when it came to Eucharistic theology than kind of a, a pure Zwinglian memorialism or the Roman Catholic view. And that was kind of maybe, you know, my naive view on what was going on sacramentally. It's kind of either of those two, two views. But when you look at the 16th century and Cramner in particular, as well as Luther and Calvin and, and all the other uh, usual suspects, you see that there's a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity even within Protestantism on these very controversial issues about Christ's presence in the Eucharist or the soteriological efficacy of the Eucharist or the sacrifice of the, of the Eucharist or, or what have you. Um, so there's a whole lot of a range of options in there. Um, and, and, and Cramner, so I, I think, um, and, and kind of getting into the historical weeds a little bit, sometimes Cramner gets, I think, lumped into um, a, a viewpoint from one or other major figures. So 
part of the history of the dispute of the interpretation of Thomas Cranmer is whether or not he's just a Zwinglian, or whether or not he's just a Calvinist or a pre-Calvin Calvinist, or whether or not he's just a Lutheran, and sort of this this uh, this uh, effort to sort of just um, assimilate him into one of the categories familiar from the Continental reformers, um, and I, I certainly think and uh, that that there is. Uh, points of contact, and there was certainly a lot of theological um, uh, interchange and, and exchange going on in the 16th century with respect to sacramental theology and issues of justification and papal authority and, and all, all manner of theological topics. But what I try to show in the art in the article, at least from my view, I think Cramner has has a view in his own right that that is is it is not easily or or simply assimilated into you know. Calvin or Bootser or Vermeule's view, but actually has its own sort of integrity to it. At least that's what I try to show. And so at least I, as I understand his view, or at least as I was articulating or arguing for in his view, he does, um, I think, kind of make a, a distinction um, between sort of two levels of consumption. I put that in kind of scare quotes uh, in, in the, in, in, uh, as I'm saying this, uh, in order to communicate as a different kind of consumption. So I, I think the two levels that he might be operating on is one a physical level, which is just kind of a you know an empirical level. You, you see the bread, you grab the bread, you consume the bread, you know, chew it with your teeth, and, and what have you. And there's that sort of like level of of eating, a physical level of eating. But there is a another level, call it a, a parallel level or, or what have you, that's operating on a spiritual plane. That at least as I was um, uh, arg arguing. I think is 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 some sort of real connection, real um, direct connection between the faithful and the body and blood of Christ. Um, what, what's tricky about that, though, is that there is a similar terminology that gets used for either level. So you know, we see we say something like, uh, you know, or, or if you're if you're administering communion, you might you know hand someone a piece of bread and say, "This is the body of Christ." Um, you know, or if a minister hands you the bread and says this is the body of Christ, you say Amen. And okay, well, what, what, what's going on there? What does that mm -hmm. actually What does that actually mean? And I, I think for Cramner, those those two levels um, can come apart, but they're meant to be brought kept together. So there are situations in which the kind of first level, just eating physically, can happen, and yet nothing spiritually beneficial happens, say the, con the consumption by like the wicked or the damned and, and sort of like Cramner's terminology there for the non-Christian. Um, they're just eating the bread. Nothing is beneficial going on spiritually. Um, but he also, I think at times indicates that perhaps there, it can happen where you can have a, this spiritual connection um, between the soul or the mind or the heart of the faithful and the body and blood of Christ, even though you're not actually eating the bread or drinking the wine. And I, at least I try to draw this out from looking at the, what his recommendations are to those who are, um, say, who are sick, they're the, the infirm, and they're not able to consume. And his uh, encouragement actually is to have the minister who's visiting that person to just encourage them to like meditate on or think on the spiritual benefits of their connection to Christ, and that is achieving that spiritual level or that second level of connectivity to Christ, even though they're not actually consuming on on the physical level. But by those are kind of like maybe two kind of limit cases. But by and large, though, the, the the point is that there are these two things going on simultaneously at any point that someone is faithfully receiving uh, the elements.
Yeah, I, I uh, like how you said kind of the second level way of communicating, I think you 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 put it, or, or the second level way of receiving the benefits without actual consumption. Um, gosh, in the, I'm just, my mind immediately went to the whole COVID-19 world and how mm. communion, can communion be done the same way? Can we even have it? Uh, it depends on where you are, what the church, you know, what the ecclesiastical church authority says on that. But um, and then there's the controversies, people fighting over um, if you could do it, you know, how remote can you do it? You know, so mm-hmm. there's all, it's, it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, when did you, was this article published <laughs> during COVID? <laughs> was it, did you write it, was, it? it was pre-pandemic. It was pre-pandemic. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, personally for me, I'm, I'm a little, um, I like how you kind of suggest in the article that, you know, we're always communing with Christ. I, I, I changed the, you had much a better, better eloquent way of putting it, but we're always um, receiving the benefits in, in a way. And, you know, ideally, you know, one day, probably the other side of the eschaton or in heaven, where we will receive the benefits without having to consume. But, you know, I mean, we'll get to that point later. Um, uh, so, but yeah, so Cramner, um, you're right. He's kind of, it, it's hard to pinpoint him. He, and he's, and he has a, a development throughout his life and career too. And so I think that does make it hard. I think a good Cramner scholar, uh, like yourself and, and some of the people you cite, uh, know that, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, okay. Um, it depends on what, you know, what stage of his development you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. so you also mentioned kind of the range of options. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of our listeners know there's a spectrum of beliefs when it comes mm-hmm. to the belief of what, is holy communion what is holy eucharist um and you know different church bodies different traditions have differing differing views on what exactly happens even in the anglican tradition there's not always been a uh clean cut you know accepted um belief of it you know mm-hmm. uh, there's been differing views of it so you mentioned in your work in general on the eucharist as some of these different traditions um, how these are understood and uh, i wanted to pick your brain because i love the terminology you use you kind of broke down uh, this is in another uh, another work you wrote, and mm-hmm. um, I don't have it in front of me. But when I when I say the terms, I know you'll know the, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, we'll start with the Roman Catholic manner mm-hmm. or understanding, mm-hmm. and, and you said even within Roman Catholicism, even within the Roman Catholic tradition, there's kind of been two tendencies or two kind of views of Holy Communion. And we'll start with those two: mm-hmm. Roman trans transubstantiation which is probably more common with our listeners and then annihilation which was kind of a new one to me what are those two things sure yeah um uh, as i understand the official roman catholic view there are sort of two commitments that you need to make with respect to the presence of christ and the elements there so and the two commitments are uh, one you've got to think that the body of christ is really there, substantially there, and the blood of Christ is substantially there. Um, But two, you also have to think that the bread is no longer there, and the wine is no longer there. And oftentimes those those kind of get conflated or they get identified with one another, but I think actually those are two separate beliefs that are that are enjoined upon the Roman Catholic faithful uh, if, if they're going to be remaining faithful, that both there is the presence of Christ and there's the absence of the bread. Um, 
But how it is that state of affairs comes to be, I think that that's where you can see a little bit of diversity. Um, now, transubstantiation is the official term, um, you know, used just as a term at, at Lateran Four, um, which is where it first comes up in any kind of conciliar statements or you know Roman Catholic official statements, and then later on it gets developed by the usual suspects in the in the medieval period, Aquinas, Scotus, and Occam, and, and etc. Um, what, what, the, what the tradition in Roman Catholicism tends to lean on, as, as far as I understand it, is that the trans in transubstantiation, the change, is a really significant point. And so that there has to be a change from the substance of the bread into the body of Christ, um, which is how it is you end up with the body of Christ, but no longer bread. The annihilationist view is, is similar and was entertained by folks like Scotus and, and others as well, um, uh, which says, well, maybe instead of thinking about it as a change, rather what you might think would be maybe easier in some level metaphysically is that God just like annihilates that the substance of the bread, just like causes it to cease to exist and then pops the body of Christ into existence at that location. So you don't have to deal with like sort of the, the, the metaphysical oddity of one substance changing into another substance. You could have a somewhat normal experience of one substance disintegrating or annihilating or just ceasing to be, and then another substance showing up. Now, again, I think that the, the later tradition in Roman Catholicism tends to not go for that view, um, but uh, it seems to me at least kind of conceptually possible. And maybe maybe one might think it's conceptually preferable depending upon one's view of the metaphysics. Right. One kind of involved kind of a more Aristotelian scheme. Yeah. So typically the Roman Catholic view has been articulated utilizing a Roman Catholic metaphysical infrastructure. Although, mm. again, as far as I understand, not being a Roman Catholic, that's not required. Um, so you have folks in the, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the 20th century, uh, Skillebex or Lonergan or Michael Dummett's an analytic philosopher as well, who have tried to articulate that, that same kind of like desiderata of the real presence of Christ and the real absence of the body, but without recourse to Aristotelian substance metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Those were definitely out of vogue in like, you know, the early 20th century, what have you. They've become a bit more in vogue in contemporary philosophy, um, but uh, but but I think you know it's 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 the it's the reality of Christ's presence and the real and the lack of Christ, uh, the the bread that's what's like been codified. The metaphysics you use to explain that I think is, as far as I understand, you know, up for discussion. Yeah, um, I like how you use the word metaphysic. I, I wanted to ask you this at some point because um, metaphysics. You know, a lot of our listeners, the the ones that are really into theology already reading the stuff or reading philosophy probably already come across the word metaphysic. Um, and, but I'm curious on, on how you would put words to that because I think um, so much of our current age kind of uh, lacks that outlook of the world that has mm -hmm. a metaphysical aspect. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything to say to that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you could just kind of break the word down a little bit. Meta meaning like beyond or after and physica, right. you know, physics being like the physical realm and what have you. And yeah. certainly we live in an age where we tend to flatten things out to just the physical, just what's empirically, you know, verifiable and what have you. 
But I mean, I think that there are metaphysical realities that we tend to interact with all the time. When you break down, I don't know, you have like a cup or something like that, and you, know, you get down to the, the fundamental physical properties of this cup, and it's almost unidentifiably distinct from the desk that it rests on or the water inside there. We're just talking about you atoms. Know, atoms and their yes. spin and all, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff and uh, what have you. Um, and yet, we, you know, we look at the cup and we say, well, the, the cup is different from the desk. I pick right. up the cup. It holds my water. You know, that's a metaphysical discussion right there. That's a sure. metaphysical statement to say that the cup is distinct from the, from the table or what have you. Likewise, you know, me and, and, and whatnot. I, I actually have physical components to myself. That's what makes up my physical reality. But I also think I have metaphysical components to it, uh, to myself as well. But that's something that's not necessarily empirically verifiable, although I think it's based upon empirical observation uh, at yeah. times as well. And so when you're talking about the 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 uh, persistence of an object across time you know it's the same object at at one moment and then it's the same object for the next moment and the next moment and the next moment well you're, you're making a metaphysical observation about some sort of physical object and its duration uh, uh you know amidst change when we're talking about the lord's supper you know we're, we're talking about um metaphysical changes as well especially if you're in the roman catholic view or any sort of like view where there's a kind of a substantial change, a Lutheran view, a high Anglican view, what have you, you might say at one moment, this is just a piece of bread. And then the priest says some words, and then the next moment, it's not just a piece of bread, it's the body of Christ. Maybe it's bread too, if you're on the Lutheran side, but you know, not, not bread if you're the Roman Catholic side, but something metaphysical has happened that you can't you know, look at empirically, you, you put the wafer under a microscope and it looks the same before the consecration and after the consecration, but something new has happened. Something beyond the physical has occurred. Right. There, and there is something behind the physical and uh, spiritual realities. <laughs> you know, there is a world beyond. Sure. And uh, so, and, and I heard you mention the uh, kind of the, the Lutheran view and I was raised uh, Lutheran and mm -hmm. I, I know uh, I was, you know, from a young age, I was taught the uh, essentially what you call the Lutheran view of the sacrament. And you get into a little bit of that too um, sure. in, in, in the terminology, kind of under the Catholic umbrella, you have uh, annihilation and transubstantiation. When you kind of get into, uh, and you kind of put it under German, uh, you, mm. you kind of have a German uh, impination. And yeah. Concepts and those consubstantiation. That's the first time. So that's the first time I ever heard the word impanation. The consubstantiation. I know, even though I was Lutheran a long time ago, I I study under well, my graduate studies. I study only under Luther's, <laughs> Lutheran Lutheran uh, scholars. Yeah. Like I, I've studied under Robert Kolb and Chad Kilcrees and people, and um, they they all argue. I mean, it's it's always like a point of argument if the Lutheran views actually consubstantiation or not. Sure. Um, you know. And, uh, but, but kind of, could you break those down? Kind of now, now kind of leaving, uh, that Roman Catholic, uh, understanding the Roman Catholic tradition, kind of going into the, the, the German manner of the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah sure. It's and, and, and so I, I do kind of use that phrase German more. I mean, it's kind of just cute, you know, so we got Roman views and we've got German views, you know, just kind of doing well, some Yeah, and I like it because you're um, talking, I mean, it's an interesting area. It's not just like, 
a religious tradition. It's like an area where all it's a it's a milieu where all this is going on. You know, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, exactly, sure. And and so in in my book, I get a little more get even more cute, and I say, well, you can have like a German Wittenberg view, um, which you might say is explicitly a, a Lutheran kind of view, or you might have a German Nuremberg view, uh, which is what I would kind of call the impanation view, because uh, Andreas Osiander, who was a pastor, Lutheran pastor, in in, in Nuremberg in the 16th century, he uh, was I guess one of the first Protestants, I guess that I know of articulated the impanation view, although it goes back into the medieval scholastics as well. So, I mean, so think about that Roman view before that required the two beliefs that there is the real presence of Christ and the real absence of the bread Mm -hmm. or vice versa, or the similar with the the wine and and the the blood. Um, As I understand what I kind of call the German view, um, it just has that one affirmation. This is the body of Christ. Um, but it doesn't need to say at all that the bread has ceased uh, to exist or the bread is no longer there. Um, the bread can continue to exist, continue to be uh, there uh, present as well. Now, I, again, I kind of break this into two families because I think, well, there's a couple ways of articulating that. I use the term consubstantiation because that's what's kind of familiar from medieval scholastic um, discussions. I hear plenty of Lutheran scholars who don't want to use that term, and they say, and I, I say that's fine. You know, I'm just trying to create some kind of conceptual space. So, if you don't want to adopt the term, that's fine. What I'm really thinking about, though, is uh, that kind of same affirmation that the the body of Christ is here, as well as the bread, and there's some kind of co-location perhaps going on there, some kind of in with and under, which is that sort of standard Lutheran mm-hmm. uh, phrase that is being articulated in order to to get the reality of both the bread and the body of Christ. Impanation views, as I articulate them, and again, Osiander, but going back into the scholastics, Occam, Scotus talk about this view as well. Um, What I I think impanation views are trying to do is they're trying to just utilize the, the conceptual framework of the incarnation in order to talk about the Eucharist. So, you know, impanation is kind of a ripoff of incarnation. Impane is inbreaded, and as incarne is in, in flesh. And, and that's kind of then what I try to do in, in my book is just say, okay, if we just like drill down here and say, whatever kind of like the, the metaphysical dynamics are that get us our, our Orthodox Chalcedonian Christology, that Christ is fully God and fully a human being, can we utilize those same metaphysical resources to talk about what's going on in the Eucharist, that it's fully the body of Christ and also that, that object is fully the body of Christ and also um, fully bread uh, as well. And so um, impanation is the term sometimes used in the tradition, so I kind of pick that up. But really what I'm interested in, in in my book is an incarnational model of the Eucharist, which is the title of the book. Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing, using the incarnation as this kind of explanatory motif for the Eucharist, that I think goes all the way back into the patristics, uh, and it's used by other uh, traditions as well, not just Lutheran, but Anglicans, and uh, I think actually also the Eastern Orthodox utilize a lot of incarnational um, explanation or similar mm-hmm. points of discussion as they talk about uh, the, the the Eucharist in, in their context. I think there's a bit, of, a bit of a nervousness to get too deep into the metaphysics in the Orthodox tradition, mm-hmm. but, but still kind of utilizing those same kind of um, explanatory dynamics of the incarnation uh, it, it you'll find present in, in some Lutheran, or sorry, some uh, Orthodox scholars as well. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of found, well, I found that that kind of that commonality between Eastern Orthodox and the Robert Kolb, Jack Hillcrease type Lutherans who 
they don't like the labels and they don't want to get in the weeds of explanation. Mm -hmm. Right. It's almost Mm -hmm. like a respect to the mystery um, type thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I I like how uh, in in that work you did, you really, um, like you said, kind of drew as best one can a conceptual framework of all the different ways the Eucharist has been, you know, conceptualized Mm -hmm. and what's going on in the Mm -hmm. Eucharist. Um, Some of it gets really in the weeds. Some of it, doesn't um hopefully we haven't t- tuned our listeners out i think the i think a lot of them are interested though <laughs> to be honest so so uh but yeah and, and we haven't even gotten into calvin zwingli but i'm sure some of those themes of calvin zwingli will show up as we talk about Cramner. so we'll yeah, get into yeah. Cramner. um so you mentioned um back to the first article we mentioned you, you talked about how there's um kind of three uh ways that tasting body of Christ or, or, you know, for a lot of our listeners, when you're, you know, knelt at the altar or you're, you're knelt at the altar rail and you're in line getting communion and the priest uh, uh, puts the bread in your hand or, or administers the cup to you. And they say, this is the body, this is the blood, or they say, take and eat this or take and drink this. That there's three ways that can be understood. Um, you say James is a, uh, one, uh, and I'll just quote from your article, taste yeah. refers to the bodily activity of the physical mouth, and the body of Christ refers to the sacramental bread that has taken his name. Two, taste refers to the faculty of spiritual sensorium, and the body of Christ refers to some immaterial aspect of God. Or three, taste refers to the faculty of spiritual sensorium, and the body of Christ refers to the body of Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified on the cross, uh, etc. Unquote. Kind of before we get into that, kind of mm. spiritual sensorium and immater- immaterial. I uh, I was really curious about uh, that terminology you use of the mm. spiritual sensorium and, and that immaterial aspect of God. What that is. Mm. Well, so the the terminology spiritual sensorium, which sounds kind of you know mystical or something like that, um, there's there's been a bit of a retrieval in some contemporary areas of contemporary theology of um, what's been called spiritual senses language, and and this is, um, I think that the book I cite in the article from Paul Gaverluck and Sarah Coakley um, is, is a significant component of a little bit of that retrieval effort. And both Coakley and, and Gavrilik and Paul Aquino and others have been doing uh, that sort of work where, where they look at the tradition, um, even going back to, to scripture, and, and, but, but plenty of the mystical writers uh, as well throughout the whole uh, Christian tradition, who use um, sense language, taste, see, hear, smell, when you're not actually referring to the physical senses. You know, even even in scripture, the psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right. Well, How do you do that, right? The psalmist is not telling you to eat anything <laughs> right. at that point, right? That, that, that's not what's going on there, you know? Or, um, or think about even, it, uh, well, I guess this is more God having the sense. I'm thinking of like, you know, the prayer is going up as incense, you know? Well, you know, well, you don't really have like scent going on there in some, you know, real robust sense. Or even just kind of thinking about uh, utilizing that kind of sense terminology. What, what, the, what the spiritual senses sort of retrieval is trying to do is try to examine this, this sensory kind of language that's being used for non-empirical senses. So tasting or hearing the word of the Lord, may that mean like actually hearing God speak, 
but it means you're in, you're in tune with God, you know, or um, or you you smell the sweetness of the Lord's goodness. You're not actually smelling anything with your nose, you know. What you mean is you're connected to God's favor. You're 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 having an awareness, a perceptual experience, you might say, of God's favor or mercy or goodness to you or what have you. But this, um, but so the spiritual senses language is like you know all over the the tradition, both in theological and devotional writings, mystical writings as well. And so I was kind of picking up on that because it seemed to me that that Cramner was doing a, that a, that very same thing when he was referring to things on that second level, like we were talking about, on that, on that sort of spiritual level. Um, and so what I was trying to, to delineate there with those three, uh, you know, sort of categories that you, that you outlined there, you read for us, um, was the fact that an expression like taste the body of Christ can mean a number of different things depending upon how you interpret each of the terms that are being used in that in that sentence. Uh, and that's where he came up. Well, maybe taste means physical taste, like with my tongue. Maybe taste means some kind of like internal spiritual perceptual experience. Maybe the body of Christ means the actual body of Christ. That was, you know, like I said, born of the Virgin. Or maybe the body of Christ just means the bread that we now, you know, call the body of Christ uh, because of the, the consecration. Uh, or maybe, you know, the body of Christ just means something less concrete and more as I put it, sort of immaterial. Maybe you just yeah. mean like, oh, okay, let's, let, you know, taste the body of Christ. Maybe that means, hey, just perceive that, you know, God is with you. Or, you right. know, just kind of perceive that God is good. Or Remember the incarnation. That was such a cool thing, God coming down to us. Remember God's grace towards us. So you might use the phrase, the body of Christ, in, in quotes, to refer to some kind of, you know, phenomenal reality or some kind of immaterial reality that, is not connected directly to one of these more concrete objects like a yeah. consecrated piece of bread or the actual body of Christ, the natural body of Christ. Yeah, and I think in those three ways you really laid out, we talked about options earlier and the kind of that spectrum of mm. beliefs coming across the various Christian traditions as they developed. And I think they can all maybe find their way one way or another in one or a combination of those ways. Um, Maybe. I mean, there might be some that are kind of outside of that pale. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. Well, uh, for me, so I was kind of utilizing that to describe these two levels. That So I, I think that mm -hmm. kind of, at least as I was understanding Cramner, when he is talking about that first level, kind of the physical level, uh, as we articulated before, then he's using taste the body of Christ in that first sort of sense that like, okay, taste just means like, you know, physically with your mouth right. and your tongue eating the bread that's you know one mm -hmm. level of interpretation but at least the argument goes when he's referring to that second level that spiritual level then he actually is referring to things in this third manner of taste the body of christ meaning like perceive that you are connected to the actual body of christ and that i think is a little bit more the kind of i don't know call it the controversial uh, component of the argument that when Cramner is utilizing this, this language of eating the body of Christ, of tasting the blood, of a very kind of carnal imagery he uses at times of like, you know, just sucking the, the, the blood out of the side of Christ. Um, right. 
that's not just like a pure metaphor, what have you, but actually what he's saying is that there is some sort of spiritual connection that's being made between the receiver, between the faithful, and the actual body and blood of Christ, and that the benefits of Christ's grace and mercy and what have you are flowing from those. Should so I it's name? A it's a three level sort of that thir third level taste of the body right. of Christ. And so you and you say Cramner's kind of um, one and three of those three ways. Yeah, as I understand him. Right. And uh, I was just going to joke because like we should I could name the episode title "Sucking the Blood Out of the Side of Christ," but I don't think I will. <laughs> I mean, that's just a quote from him. <laughs> <laughs> right? Is it a really a quote from him? From the Archbishop? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Um, so kind of in the going back to the language uh, we we commonly use to describe these spiritual realities and these metaphysical realities, um, you say that there's an important distinction. Uh, you, you you already brought up uh, Paul Gavriluk and Sarah Coakley um, and how they kind of say, well, we use figurative speech when we talk about these things, but there's two two modes of figurative speech, right? Mm. There's analogy, there's uh, metaphor. Um, and a lot of times when we're describing these realities, like what takes place in the Eucharist, we're, we're you know, we could be speaking analog analogically or we could be speaking metaphorically. Um, so you say that um, the distinction is important um, in, in trying to understand how Cramner falls along, along the lines of, um, one, in, of one in three of those three ways, kind of that distinction of the two different ways you could use modes of figurative speech. Um, is that like a question? Is that like, does he, is he more analogical or metaphorical or is there, is it both and? Does it depend on what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of both and or, or maybe depending upon depending upon which level you take him to be articulating, if he's mm -hmm. talking about, so if I, I, I'd say, so Gavrilik and, and Coakley make the distinction between analogical and metaphorical and analogical uh, discussions um, sort of obtain when there is a more close association between the, the, the reality that's being described and the analogy that's using being used to describe that relationship. Metaphor is used when there's no close similarity between these various these various things. So what I take it then is that when Christ is operating, or when Cramner is operating, uh, talking about the body of Christ on that first level, that 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 physical level, then that's more of an analogical sort of a thing. But when he's operating on the um, the, the the B level, um, uh, it is. Uh, such that there is a, it, it's still analogical, but it, it's more of a connection to the body of Christ by means of not a physical reality, but by means of some sort of spiritual reality. Mm -hmm. So, so Cramer does, I mean, as far as I understand, doesn't, doesn't want to locate, you know, for instance, the body of Christ in the host. Sure. He doesn't want to locate the body of Christ in your mouth when you're eating it. He's like, that, that's, that's not what's going on in terms of the actual body of Christ. Uh, what's going on in terms of the actual by of heart of Christ is is feeding on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving as we say in, in in the liturgy so it's it's in the heart so but again using this kind of spiritual senses uh language here the heart here i think is analogical for or representative of um some kind of a spiritual location within the person that has this 
kind of quote unquote consumptive ability or perceptive kind of ability that is able to then consume or perceive the actual body of Christ, but on a spiritual level, not on, on the physical level. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to get, again, just more kind of clarity on the distinction between these two levels and how the, the sentences you say, the predications you use, this is the body of Christ, will mean something different, though related, depending upon which level you're talking about here. Right. Um, it, it, so how, you know, I imagine Cr- Cramner corresponded with, um, over from his island, he kind of corresponded with all the adjacent reformations, if you will, kind of going on in mainland, mainland Europe. Um, and like Bootser, for instance, who that we had a, our recent episode, we had uh, talked a lot about him uh, for our listeners. If you want to learn more about him, uh, but not just Bootser, we, ha- you know, you have other reformers and, and, and uh, it, I find a lot of parallels uh, between what I've heard and read secondhand of Cal- from Calvin and then with, with Cramner, but I don't know how accurate that is. It seems like Cramner had a, uh, a much, it seems like he had more of a passion for the Eucharist. It seems like to be a very central thing for him mm. he, that he devotes a lot of writings, a lot of works on. And, um, but, but it does, when he does come, when it, when the rubber hits the road, when he does come with, when he does form this theology of it, what's going on in the Eucharist, it is, it does seem similar to Calvin in many ways, at least the, um, the whole idea of, you know, it's not denying, um, our, that we're truly meeting Christ in it, but it's not, the concern is not to locate, to locate it. I mean, definitely not to uh, locate it corporeally, but just in any way, it's, it's that that's not what it's really about, I guess, for Cramner. Mm. Um, are, are there similarities between Cramner and Calvin in, as far as this goes? Sure, I think I think some. So, I mean, you know, a little, little bit of historical context there in terms of Cramner's writing on the Eucharist. Um, you know, if, you were, if, you, if you're thinking about that, like in that controversial 16th century, um, the, the Eucharist was right up there on, you know, top five, top three, maybe, and then sometimes top issue of, of controversy. I mean, certainly Luther is breaking with the Roman Catholic Church based on issues pertaining to uh, justification and, you know, the role of faith and what have you. And certainly we have issues of papal authority being, you know, debated in England in the 1530s uh, and, and whatnot, uh, 20s and 30s. Um, um, and, and Luther and Zwingli are debating the Lord's Supper, and there are Christological controversies going on between the Reformer and the Lutheran and what have you. Um, but I think in England, in England, the Eucharist was maybe the central topic that was the point of controversy. Really? It, it was Cranmer's view on the Eucharist that got him killed. That, that's ultimately what it was that, that, that had him be burnt at the stake. It wasn't well, an Was it really? How did that, I mean, I know he was, they, Mary came and killed all the, all the reformers that were still there, but like, what, like, was it a conversation or a debate that set off a chain of events? Uh, what, what was that? I mean, he was, he was arrested, you know, he was arrested under, under Mary after she came uh, to, to power there. And um, he was interrogated for a number of days. This was in, uh, this was in Oxford. This is where he was, um, uh, you know, where he was put. Um, and he was made to sign a confession 
um, it made a sign of confession that he everything he had written on the doctrine of the Eucharist up to that point was was false, and that he you know he believed oh. in the Roman Catholic view of, the, of of transubstantiation, and you know he repented of he repented of everything that he had written previously, which were these two massive books, including his liturgies as well, um, uh, uh, kind of polemical works against his Roman Catholic interlocutor at the time. Uh, and, and so that was what, so that, that was what was supposed to kind of, kind of get him off the hook um, and, and put him back to right standing in the church so that when he was executed, he wouldn't end up being, you know, uh, uh, condemned to the fires of, of hell. Um, but then as the story goes, he was made to, to preach a sermon um, in the, the church of St. Mary the Virgin right there the, in, in Oxford at the, you know, beautiful church right in the middle of, of, of Oxford. And he was supposed to preach a sermon on the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. And he gets up there and, you know, he had a change of heart. He had a change of conscience. And he get up there and said, like, basically everything that I had said before, I, I believe. And like, you know, the, this hand or whatever is going to be the one that goes into the fire first. And, you know, as the hagiography goes, he was ripped down from the pulpit and taken right outside and he was burnt at the stake and he held his hand out there because this was the hand that had signed the document that said he had endorsed the Roman Catholic view, which he, he no longer did. So, so it was his Eucharistic views that put him as being both excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church and then uh, eventually uh, executed. So that was just to say, the, the, the controversy in England over the doctrine of the Lord's Supper was was huge, and it was huge uh, not just with Cranmer but with others as well. Ridley, Latimer, um, Peter Martyr Vermeule, who, who maybe uh, we mentioned before, who is a really interesting uh, figure. Uh, he was uh, teaching at uh, well, when back back of a few years when Cranmer was still Archbishop and uh, Edward was still the King. Um, uh, Cranmer invited Bootser to, to hold a chair at Oxford and Vermeule to hold a chair at Cambridge. So you had these like two theological heavyweights of the Continental Reformation uh, teaching in the two heavyweight universities in uh, England at the time. And, um, and apparently they, they spent some summers hanging out with Cranmer at Lambeth Palace or whatnot and, you know, debating the finer points of, of theology as well. And so Vermeule actually held a debate in Oxford prior to uh, Cranmer's execution on the doctrine of, of the Lord's Supper. And that gets later on published as uh, what Vermeule's views are. And, and uh, Calvin himself actually had said, oh, Peter Martyr Vermeule, like he, he nailed it when it comes to the doctrine of, of the Lord's Supper. So I, th I think reading Calvin in light of Bootser, kind of his theological father, you might say, and also uh, Vermeule, kind of a contemporary of the maybe also a little bit afterwards as well, is, is really important to do. Okay, so that was, that was historical background for how do you distinguish, though, Calvin's view from Cramner's view, from Zwingli's view, or, or what have you. Um, my, my thought on this, and this is kind of following someone like Brian Garrish and Dearman McCulloch as well, um, is that this kind of two-level operation that I was kind of describing here, this kind of parallelism is Garrish's term, um, that's a bit different than what Calvin would talk about, because Calvin tended to, from my understanding, Calvin tended to think that there was more going on with respect to the instrumental role that the elements played in effecting or bringing about the spiritual consumption that would be going on on the on the second level so calvin doesn't quite have the same two level operation that cramner has going on in his articulation of christ's presence um but uh but there but there's you know points of contact there uh, as well 
I, I think this kind of like, um, I hate to say it's a strict bifurcation, but but I think it is. It's 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 a bifurcation of the spiritual reality and the physical reality that are not necessarily coincidental. This kind of parallelism that is, I think is Cramner's unique contribution mm-hmm. to you know Protestant 16th century uh, uh, Eucharistic theology. That 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 does make him different than Calvin and different than Zwingli, although somewhere in that in that neighborhood um, at the same time, different than from from Luther or those in the more kind of German category as we called them earlier. Right. Yeah. Um, so thanks for for this discussion on Cramner. Um, kind of looking at the time, I had a couple questions uh, for you, kind of shifting sure. gears. I'm curious about uh, your book because. I remember back when you when you mentioned uh, uh, like the debate, Luther and Zwingli had some famous or infamous, however one wants to look at it, debates on the Eucharist. And there's, uh, this isn't just like, these debates aren't just for like people's own health. Well, maybe they are, but they're not just for the heck of it, right? They're, there's Christological mm. implications, right? Um, how we understand the nature of who Jesus is, some would argue, is tied to why they had these debates and why they were so heated. Now, Absolutely. again, we're not in the 16th century. Maybe, thankfully, I would I would hate to see someone dragged out of a church and and burn at the stake because they, you know, um, gosh, what a different time. But uh, nevertheless, uh, so incarnation, right? Uh, the nature mm-hmm. of Jesus is divine, and uh, human nature is tied to the Eucharist, and you, you're. If you want to give a kind of a synopsis, you, you wrote a book recently, uh, Incarnational Model of the Eucharist. Uh, what, what, what's your book focus on in that? Yeah, well, it's kind of like I articulated earlier with respect to the impanation view. It's just a matter of uh, if we take Chalcedonian Christology, so that Christ is fully God and fully human, um, you know, united in one person. Uh, if we use that as our explanatory motif for what's going on with respect to the the Eucharist, kind of how can we how can we do that? How can we make make sense of that? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in the book, I try to utilize especially some contemporary discussions of Christology within the analytic theology literature. You might say sort of more philosophical approaches to discussing theological topics. Um, there's been a fair amount of work done trying to think, well, how is it that two natures and one person can work together. What, what's the relationship between right. these natures in, in one person? Um, and so I try to utilize some of those resources to say, well, if we, if we can say this about Christ, which is like two in one, right. maybe we can say this about the Eucharist as well, which is in, within this kind of German camp is also two in one. You know, it's, it's the body of Christ as well as being, uh, being the bread. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the case I make in that book. Good, good. I, I'm curious to read it and um, let you know, uh, you know, my my positive thoughts on it <laughs> when I do read it. <laughs> but no, um, and so and this is a, what a, a kind of a tough question I have for you, um, given that there is the spectrum of belief on the Eucharist and uh, that still pertains today uh, between these different churches. Uh, where do you see opportunity, if any, for common understanding across followers of Christ? This might be a million-dollar question, because <laughs> I don't know. think it's, a, it's not a simple answer. But well, I think if everyone just read my book, we'd solve all the controversies <laughs> on the doctrine of the Eucharist. <laughs> there you go, right? I mean, not totally. But, that, I mean, I do have a, a bit of an ecumenical you know, desire, and that's kind of part of the, the reason why I was interested in this topic. I mean, here is supposed to be this doctrine— this act that's supposed to be the sign of Christian unity, 
And yet in the history and even today, in some respects, it ends up being, you know, just evidence of Christian division. Yeah. And I think that's really lamentable. Um, so in kind of my hope in, in parts of that book, and I kind of end with an ecumenical, I don't know, call there, is that I, I think that there are some resources drilling into the incarnation, which is something that all Orthodox Christians should be excited about and on, on board with, um, and, and that uh, can, can, can be brought to bear on the doctrine of the, of the Lord's Supper in, in such a way that you don't actually have to give up some of your Lutheran or Reformed or um, even even maybe to some extent Zwinglian kind of like tendencies to come to uh, come to the view that I try to advocate for uh, as a as a mediating point as bringing together a number of these points of of, of uh, potential divergence. Now, I think my the view I articulate there, the Roman Catholic can't sign on to that. If they're going to be a faithful Roman Catholic, you've just got to say there's no longer bread there. And I say, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have a view for, for you on that one. But I think it's uh, it's something that Lutherans, Orthodox, Anglicans, Reformed, um, even to some extent Baptists or you know Evangelicals. What's what's kind of a virtue about Baptists or, or low church Evangelicals is they usually don't like prohibit belief in Christ's real presence. They just don't think this is just not important or it's just not something they try to like articulate there. But it's not like you can't believe that Christ is really present. It's just not a value. But if you, you know, took that on as a value, well, here's a, a viewpoint that might also even be attractive to those in, in, in those kinds of traditions that, that don't tend to think too much about like the metaphysical reality of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. Sure. And uh, for our listeners, um, thanks for tuning in. There is a metaphysical reality out there. We need a re-enchantment of this world, as a colleague of mine once recently said. And maybe you will find that. Maybe you will find that re-enchantment. Maybe you will find the benefits of the body of Christ um, if you have not yet. And so that's my evangelism call. I don't always put out uh, a a call like that for but. Um, thank you. May the Lord uh, bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and, and give you joy and peace all the day long. I just actually just said the preschool version of that blessing that I said today in our little school chapel. My, my, uh, but, uh, I think that can apply to adults though. Uh, may the joy of Christ be with all of us. And, um, thank you, uh, James for being on this show. Uh, your, um, uh, kind of, you know, further commentary on this work you've done. Um, the Eucharist has been very illuminating and, and uh, I'm excited for uh, our, our listeners to tune into you and to, and to hear your work and your knowledge and, um, and really your efforts in furthering the discussion. And maybe, like you said, making these points of contact, bridging and bridging differences too. So um, uh, can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I accidentally, uh, my mic accidentally came unplugged, but I'm, I'm on the regular audio now. So God bless you, James. And, um, and, uh, thank you. This has been a great honor to have you on here. So. Well, thanks. My pleasure. Appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Have a good evening. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doff Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. 
Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.